Hey friends, before we get started with this episode, just wanted to encourage you to head over to our website, strategicfamilies.com, where you can get lots of free resources for families and also sign up for our email list for new content. All right, thanks and enjoy. How do you prevent the lies from infecting you and your children and your family and your community? I would argue that's by filling yourself with goodness and truth and beauty. Welcome to the Strategic Families Podcast, where we challenge your family to be rooted in God's Word, energized with gospel-centered purpose, and activated on mission for His kingdom. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. I hope everyone was able to celebrate all of the amazing mothers in your lives on Mother's Day. So my guest today is Andrew Pudawa, host of the Arts of Language podcast and the founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, a program that our oldest child has used and is just amazing. Andrew is really a gifted thinker and communicator and teacher and someone that we just respect tremendously. There's so much to love about his ministry, but I just love listening to him because he has a way of helping us think more deeply about what's going on in our world. Our topic today is a heavy one, but it's one that we would really be wise to consider, preparing for persecution. And just to clarify, we don't want this to instill fear in anyone. We have nothing to fear except having a holy, reverent fear of God. But it is important for us to really understand the times that we live in and what that may mean for us as Christians and Christian families. It's a great challenge and one that we need to wrestle with and attempt by God's grace to help our kids start to see as well. We want to prepare ourselves and our children to be strong and courageous and not to shrink back as God's word calls us to. And I think you'll find Andrew's perspective sobering, but also life-giving. And just a friendly reminder, if this show has been a blessing to you, don't forget to hit the subscribe button and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And check out our Patreon page as well if you'd like to support the production of the podcast. All right, on to the show. It is my privilege to have on the show today a prominent teacher, thinker, and someone who's been hugely influential to my family, Andrew Pudua. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. It is a privilege and a pleasure to be here with you. Excellent. For those who may not know you, could you just introduce yourself to our listeners and you know, tell us a little about your background, your family, and uh, specifically the Institute for Excellence in Writing? Yeah, sure. Um, I have seven children, all grown, the youngest of which is 22. And all of my children who have school-age children are homeschooling their children. So it's kind of exciting to see the exponential curve happening in my family. I have been involved with home education and teaching for over about 30 years. And uh, I founded uh, a company called the Institute for Excellence in Writing back in 1995 as kind of a little part-time gig just to help me bring in a few extra dollars so I could continue to afford to teach music. And after about five years, uh, I was uh, doing quite well, traveling around, teaching seminars, starting to sell some some video tapes. We actually had those VHS tapes and cassette tapes in the beginning and um, went full-time in 2000, and it's just grown. And so uh, I am tremendously blessed to be able to meet uh, many thousands of families each year at conventions and workshops and conferences. And uh, I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Uh, have been here for about 12 years. And uh, I am, I I will say to you and all of your listeners who are still on the young side of parenting, uh, the absolute best thing about being alive at my age is grandchildren. That's a little bit. Um, I was uh, trained as a Suzuki violin teacher. And so for the first kind of third of my adult life, I taught violin and kinder music to very young children. And so my whole perspective on teaching and education is very much uh, shaped by my identity as a music teacher. Uh, But I've been called to something else uh, now, and so I'm happy to be able to bring some of that experience and and wisdom, if it is, to bear and share that with families such as 
you and your wife, who I believe I met recently at the homeschool convention in South Carolina. Yeah, she was at that convention and she saw one of your talks and was very excited about it and came back and told me all about it. She was just really moved by what you had to share. And, you know, obviously this is something I wish we didn't have to talk about, but, you know, it's, it's a really important one. And I think if we're reading the Bible carefully, we'll kind of discover that persecution and, you know, trials are really pretty normative in scripture. And that's not normally in, you know, in the American West, how we, how we think of it, we try to avoid suffering and and persecution, but I wanted to just lay a little background for this and I wonder if you could share with our listeners what got you thinking about this topic and you know why do you think it's so important right now that we that we talk about it well i've been giving a talk for many years called conquering corrupt culture by raising christian communicators and in that book in that talk i mention a book uh, called raising them right which is a book on i guess parenting and education but it's by this very obscure guy named Theophan the Recluse, who is evidently an Eastern Orthodox theologian, hermit, saint kind of guy from the 1800s. And, you know, initially you'd wonder, what would a guy named Theophan the Recluse know about raising children? But he makes a pretty compelling argument in that book that the whole end of education is the cultivation of attitudes or appetites that everything we do in raising children is to create uh, certain appetites. In other words, what are your desires? What do you want? And, you know, I can see that. And then he kind of lays out this uh, very uh, compelling and disturbing argument that the uh, appetites of a Christian should be to follow Christ. And to follow Christ means living a life of service and selflessness and surrender and suffering and sacrifice. And I, I realized I do not really relish any of those things. I mean, service is good. I like to get paid for it. Surrender is kind of part about, you know, getting married and having a family. But this business of, you know, sacrifice and suffering this does not appeal to me. I just realized how far I am personally from that ideal and how in the world can I teach my children to have an appetite for something that I do not personally embrace. And it was kind of convicting. And I was kind of giving this talk last year and this thought came into my mind I really need to expand this idea and say, what does it mean to have an education that prepares us to follow Christ in that kind of literal sense? And this was kind of floating around in the back of my head and I, I don't wanna do this kind of talk. It's kind of, I'll just stick with what I know you know, cultivating language arts preschool through high school. That's an easy one, but it kept nagging me. And then I saw a headline uh, on an email that came through from a group called Barnabas Aid. And uh, I think I must have contributed to that group at one point. It, it, they support Christians primarily in the Middle East. And the headline was Pakistani pastor murdered outside his church, which didn't really grab me because, you know, Pakistani pastors murdered, that's not a, a shocking thing. What really grabbed me was the quote right below it from his wife, who said, I am proud and grateful to be the wife and the daughter of a martyr. And I just thought that is a concept that is so foreign to me as a modern day American. I don't think that I could muster up the, the idea if my wife, for example, were murdered for her faith, that I would be grateful, that I would give glory to God for that. 
And it got me thinking like for the first few hundred years of Christianity, Christians did not educate their children so that they could, you know, get a good job and make enough money to be comfortable and successful. That was not a purpose for education at that time. Um, what were early Christians basically educating their children for? Persecution and martyrdom. So anyway, this kind of uh, segued into a, you know, a book we, we mentioned before we started recording here, which was Rod Dreher's book, Live Not By Lies. And I've read everything Rod Dreher has written. Well, I've read all of his books. He's, he's prolific. But it, I thought this is one of the most important books in print today, maybe the most important book. And in the first half, you know, he kind of points out that we are right now kind of careening uncontrollably toward what he calls this soft or pink totalitarianism, that there's forces um, that want to really control our society in a very anti-Christian way. And we see this, you know, in government initiatives, we see it a lot in what's going on in public schools today, unfortunately. And there are many good teachers in schools, but you look at the, the radical, the, the progressive edge of it, and it's flat out evil. Uh, you know, when we've been through the COVID years and the specters of things like vaccine passports and tracking and this this kind of ability of of big tech to spy on everyone that was way beyond what even the East Germans had back in the Soviet era. And uh, I just thought, you know, God can do anything. We can have a, a revival in this country, but we could also not have a revival. We could we could head into a very, very dark time where our Christian moral values and standard and ideals are hated mm. um, by, a, by a majority. And if we, if we hit that point, what does that mean for us? So that's what kind of got me all thinking about this. And I resisted. I said, I do not want to do a talk called Preparing for Martyrdom because who's going to come? So I, I softened it a little bit into preparing for persecution. <laughs> oh, that's good. I mean, such a, wow, such an important topic. And again, it's, it's one that we, we don't want to think about. I mean, I'm with you. There's, you know, you just hear persecution and suffering. That's like, ah, no, we need to do whatever we can to avoid that. Right. Well, no, the Lord is with us in it and he's got purpose in it. And you're so right that we have to understand the times we're living in and not, you know, sort of metaphorically stick our heads in the sand and just hope it goes away. And so many of the things I think that we could have made assumptions about in the seventies or eighties are, are just no longer true, you know, in many public settings. And, you know, that just sort of gets me thinking about uh, my next question, which is tied into what you just talked about, but zooming out a little bit and thinking about the purpose of, I mean, really the purpose of parenting. And when I say parenting, I mean, you know, training, educating our kids. And I would just love it if you could address some of the lies in our culture that we fall prone to sometimes as parents and why it's so important for us to come back to the word and to teach our kids the truth from the word. Obviously, that's a, that's a huge question. I know we can't cover all of that. We have been charged by the Lord to pass on these great, powerful, life-giving truths from the word. And if we're not careful, we can just kind of go with the flow of culture, whatever the next tolerance or whatever it is, you know, some, some new concept that's not really grounded in scripture, and we can get off track. And, and here's the kind of scary thing is that we might not even know it. You know, we might just be going with the flow and doing what everybody else is. And so could you just talk to how we as Christian parents can step in 
and really ground our kids in the word of God? Well, I think there are many people who kind of think that we still live in a Christian country with a Christian worldview and a Western Christian heritage and that we can kind of coast on that pretty easily. There's this cultural Christianity, you know, that I grew up with that seemed to just be taken for granted. And more and more, the evidence shows that that is that, that we're just at the end. We've spent all the capital and we're, we're running on fumes. And we, we need to fill up our metaphorical spiritual gas tank with some high octane fuel to get through this next period of time. And, and one of my reasons I was willing to do this talk was even if we don't experience active persecution or martyrdom, there's always the temptation to not speak the truth against the lie because it's uncomfortable, because there's risk, because it might affect our, you know, livelihood in some cases. And, you know, we do this best. And, and I know this is part of why you do what you do at Strategic Families is it's not just about reading the Bible or memorizing verses. It's about living that uh, through example. Children learn way more through our example than through, you know, what we read or say to them. Uh, not to say that reading and talking aren't important, but if you look for, if you look at studies that have been done to determine what affects kids when they grow up, like they're going to leave home, they might go to college, they might go in the workplace, they might, you know, go in the military or go somewhere. What happens to them when they leave Christian homes? Well, the studies that have been done over the last decade kind of show that most kids stop attending church, practicing their faith, being connected with their religious heritage within one year of leaving home. That's, that's a, a super majority, depending on which study, 60 to 80 percent of Christian kids. And we see this because churches are, you know, shrinking and dying, all denominations all over the place. And yet within the homeschool world, as well as within families that have missionary or evangelical life, they, they do things together to serve, to work to evangelize, to practice charity in the world. They keep their kids out of places where they're going to get this very worldly anti-religious indoctrination, even semi-subconsciously, then the statistics are reversed and you get 60 to 80% of those kids are still, you know, active in their churches, practicing their faith, living in that way a year after they leave home. So kids go to public school, you know, it's, a minimum of 14,400 hours over 12 years of being in this environment where there's basically one thing that is a required belief. And that is, you can have your truth, he can have his truth, she can have her truth, and I can have my truth. But what we really have to believe is that all truth is equally valid, all truth is equally good. And that is, you know, the core lie of relativism. Right. And so no matter how much we read the Bible to our kids, you know, if that's what the world is continuously teaching them through the things that are said and not said in the schools or from social media or from news organs or from peers, you know, that's the belief they will take away, which is anybody should be able to believe whatever they want. And it's all equally good. And that is a really, really hard thing to undo. Uh. So 
you know, my thought is how do we create more than just more than just a a culture of studying the word of God? How do we create a home culture where truth has a capital T and it permeates everything we do in our family and in our lives? And that is an extremely hard thing to do throughout history. It's been hard to do because the world, the flesh and the devil hate the truth. But I think it's particularly hard right now because the world, the flesh and the devil seem to be getting the upper hand over all of the information that comes to us and and to our children. Yeah. Wow. That's so powerful. Those stats are so powerful. And on your comment about the moral relativism, I think my I think my favorite is the, uh, you know, there is no such thing as absolute truth. And then you want to stop and say, wait, except for what you just said, right? <laughs> are, are you claiming that to be an absolute truth? You know, yeah. I mean, it just kind of falls on its face. It's manifestly absurd. <laughs> well, and it's, it's the same argument for tolerance. Like we, we have to have tolerance for all people and everything they think of, except for anyone who disagrees with the idea that we should tolerate everything. That's right. You know, well, and. And that's that's not a new problem. That's a problem that's been around for centuries, millennia. Sure. But it seems to be coming to a more obvious head, head of the beast, I guess, if you will, right here and now, because some of the things we're being asked to tolerate are not just anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-truth. They are anti-biology and anti-common sense that humans have had since we were created. Right. And so, you know, you could, you could have a discussion, are we in end times or not? But, you know, people have been thinking that for a long time and it really doesn't matter because we have to make decisions about, you know, particularly how we raise children and cultivate relationships and how we spend time and, and the culture that we bring into our home, we have to make those decisions every single day. Yes, precisely. I think, I think you used this word earlier, but I think it's a key word, and that's the word antithetical. I do think what we're facing right now is antithetical, and that is relatively new uh, to many of us as parents, that it is, it, it's hostile. And that's kind of hard to wrap your mind around. Like A lot of the things that you and I might say, well, that, that's, and that's obvious. I mean, that, this is reality, right? And a lot of those ideas are being attacked and they really are antithetical to a Christian worldview. And so, yeah, that's one of our main jobs as parents is to help our kids. We owe it to them. I feel like we owe it to them to help them see the lies in our culture. So we need to teach them the word. We need to model the word, but we also need to help them see, hey, these are the things you're going to come up against. And I, you know, I'll be honest, we homeschool uh, we're in a lot of Christian activities. I mean, we we have protected them from a lot of this. And so part of our job, my and Katie's job, is to help them see, hey, you know, one of these days and over time, we'll, we'll give them more exposure to the world. But we really want to prepare them before we give them too much exposure. And yeah, that's a, that, can be, that can be a tricky balance. But by God's grace and through people like you just teaching us and mentoring us, um, you know, uh, hopefully we'll be able to prepare them well. But, and so that kind of leads to my next question. I love it. I, I heard you uh, talk about this, I think on one of your podcasts, and you may have even talked about it in your uh, preparing for persecution talk. This is the idea. I just thought this was fascinating, but training ourselves to be physically, mentally, and spiritually fit. And I think a lot of times we might hear a topic like this and think like, all right, I just need to be just need to be spiritually fit. And of course you do, but I love how you tied in, especially the physical aspect. And I know personally, that's been a big thing for you. So I wonder, could you talk about that and how those three uh, interplay with one another and why they're all so important as we prepare for this, this time we live in? Yeah, I think there's a tendency that we all have to believe that our, our spiritual self our spiritual identity is somehow separated or not fully integrated with our mental and our 
physical self. And so we, we do, I mean, there's a human tendency to want to compartmentalize and say, yeah, I got that under control without understanding how it relates. And 2020 was a very interesting year for me because I stopped traveling. Like I didn't go anywhere for 16 months and I had not done that for over two decades. Uh, and I, you know, I've been on the road probably a hundred days a year or more for a very long time. So it was a fascinating adjustment for me. And I started to understand the power of routines where I never really had before, because I would be, I'd have my on the road identity, my on the road habits. You know, I know really well how to navigate airports and hotels and restaurants and, you know, all that. And when that stopped, there was kind of like this, wow, I have all this space in my life. And for various reasons, I won't go into a lot of depth. I started, well, I'll, I'll tell you what really happened, just so you know. I was playing with my grandchildren one day and I had this incredibly strong desire come to my mind and heart. I really want to see these kids grow up. I want to see them have children. You know, kind of the way you, you're kind of looking forward to your own children and what are they going to be like when they're adults? And won't that be cool? And I had the same feeling about grandchildren, but like all at once. And then I realized if I want to see these children grow up, I'm going to have to live long enough to do it. So I kind of got on this, like learning about health and longevity and diet and exercise. And, and so it became my hobby for the year. And I was not motivated by any particularly noble inclination other than the selfish desire to live longer. So I could see my grandchildren grow up and maybe see some great grandchildren. But as time went on, I started to see this amazing connection between my care of myself physically and then also my care of myself spiritually and mentally. And so as I started to develop routines that involved some fairly strict diet and exercise regimen, I added to that this kind of idea of spiritual regimen and devoting time to study and prayer, which I really had never done in that kind of serious way before. And, you know, I, I hate to say it because a lot of people suffered, but 2020, halfway into 2021, this is the best year of my whole life because I felt so much God working with me, working on me. And I'm late. I'm, I'm late in life. I wish I could have done it 20, 30 years ago. But, you know, you can only do what you're ready for. And, you know, God himself could have said, you should do this or that. And I probably would have said, yeah, I will when I have time. So that's kind of what got me on. But the other thing I started to be attracted to was stories of primarily Christians who had been persecuted, imprisoned, even tortured. You know, Rod Dreyer's book, Live Not By Lies, the second half, he's in Eastern Europe and he's interviewing families that had lived through the Soviet era in some of the worst places, Bulgaria, East Germany. He talked to people whose parents had lived through the Soviet, or through the Nazi era with basically the question, how did you do this? How did you survive the persecution with your faith and your family intact when all of hell was trying to break your family and destroy your faith and steal your kids and chew them up and make them part of this totalitarian, atheistic, godless regime? And, you know, so the, his stories were good. And I started to kind of collect up other stories. And I remembered reading, uh, maybe you've heard of the book Tortured for Christ by Richard Wormbrand. 
and uh, you know he lived through the Nazi era and then in in Russia and imprisoned. And I remember reading this as a teenager, not because I was a Christian, but somehow this book came onto my screen, and I just remember thinking, that is just so amazing. Why would anyone choose? suffering and imprisonment and misery and and physical pain over simply capitulating and giving in and confessing and and avoiding all that and and what i have found in this kind of sequence of books and i'm still collecting them in fact i ordered another one just recently about a guy um, under castro in cuba what I am now convinced of is that this ability to suffer is the most important thing to bring us closer to Christ spiritually, emotionally, mentally. Um, he lived his whole life knowing that he would suffer and die. And we can't avoid suffering or death. That's just what it means to be human we can try to alleviate our suffering and postpone our death but is you know and and we don't fault anyone who does that but but there's this willingness that certain people had to join their sufferings with the suffering with christ that brought them this incredible joy and this comes through in the in the books, the biographies, the autobiographies, the stories of those who were willingly tortured for Christ. And I, I just find these stories absolutely fascinating right now. And in a way, when you get into this world of, okay, you know, I'm I'm fasting, I'm exercising to the point of having sore muscles pretty much all the time I, I was gonna write a talk called the year of being sore and hungry um it, there's something about that that physical discomfort that amplifies the spiritual work that you're trying to do and i don't know how exactly one gets there and i'm not exactly sure how you bring that into the lives of children in a balanced way but i again kind of by our example i think our children can see the joy in living a life of sacrifice and I, I, the good news is we may have more opportunity to practice that if things get worse right i was reminded of you know paul talks in philippians chapter 3 Verse 10 says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. And uh, wow, you're right. That's just, not, that's just not something we think about. And here's Paul saying, I, I want to identify with Christ's sufferings. Do we think actively about participating in Christ's sufferings, I mean, that we pretty much do what we can to avoid it, but I think you're so wise to help us prepare, and I think that physical side is is so huge, and I, I have a confession or maybe a profession to make. I listened to one of your podcasts. I think it was on, it was an interview you did on the uh, Homeschool Solutions podcast, I think it was, and you talked about just how important the physical side has been to you. You really prompted me. And so this, this past week, I've been exercising a lot more. I've uh, done a little bit of that this year, but you just kind of jump-started me and I said, yeah, I, you know, I, I need to be physically fit. And I've, I've found in my own life, I think just exercising a little bit, it just engages your mind. So you're just sharper. You know, you're just more ready to take on the day. You think more clearly, just a little more on top of things. We normally don't tie those two together at all, but I really think there is a deep connection, we would do well, we would be wise to pay attention to it. Because we are, as you mentioned, we are embodied. You know, th this is not, God gave us a body. And this is the temple that he's given us. We would do well to care for it. And it affects our spiritual fitness, I think. Quick, true confession. So 
I lost a significant amount of weight and I developed um, some muscle with the help of my son, who's a personal trainer at the gym. And so I was standing in front of this mirror thinking, I look a lot better than I used to. And it was kind of this moment of, I don't know, sick masculine pride, I suppose. You know, I, I hadn't gone quite so far as the guys at the gym who take selfies in the mirror, but it was that feeling like, yeah, I'm good. I'm making progress. And then this, like, there's been a few times in my life where I thought that idea that just came in on my brain was like God talking to me. And it was, I need you to be strong. Not, not just looking good and not just physically strong, but that although that's part of it, that God needs me to be strong. And what does that mean? So the, uh, the other thing that I have come to consider in reading these books about people who gave up everything and suffered, you know, persecution, imprisonment, even torture. I started to imagine that situation. What if, what if I were in a situation where I was cut off from everyone? I was separated from family, friends. I had no more resources. I had no possessions except, you know, whatever clothes were on my body. I was completely dependent on someone who hates me for everything, what would you have left? What would you have if that were where you were? And, you know, it's kind of hard to go from right now, you know, I have a comfortable everything um, and I feel nice and secure in my comfort, but what if that were all stripped from me and it could happen very fast? Well, what would remain? And then I, I, really started thinking about this concept of identity because that's all you would have is who are you you would only have yourself left so who are you how do you define yourself and that got me going on this whole concept of one of the most important things we can do you know is help our children learn how to define who they are because if we don't do that, the world will attempt to define them. Yes. And, and I kind of had this amusing realization, which is if you asked me, who are you? And I started down this path of defining myself, the very, very last thing, and I, this might not ever even come into my brain, is to say, I am a heterosexual cisgender, white, middle-class male. Like the, those things are so peripheral to who I am. And yet I thought there's a huge force in the world that not only would want to identify me that way, but condemn me for being these things. Right. And so I thought, okay, it's, it's about how do I define myself? Mm. And it's about our kids. So where do we start? We start at the top level. And the idea of, am I a created being with a relationship to a creator? Or am I an accident of the universe? That right there is foundational to every other decision you would make every other perception you would have about yourself yes and i've heard and i know you're a fan of carl truman i, I heard him say one time he was talking about this and he goes there are really only two options either you're a complete accident or you were created <laughs> yes and, like that's it and that realization came to me as i was listening to his book the rise and triumph of the modern self and i i thought you you can't even have a conversation if that's not the first question you ask, but then you kind of go through layers. So because I am a created being with a relationship to a creator, that defines me. That's an identity. 
and, and then you kind of can go down from there. I, in, in addition to that, I am a follower of Christ. That's more than just someone who likes the idea of Jesus. That's more than someone who says, you know, I, I am a Christian because there's a lot of people might say I'm a Christian, but to say I'm a follower of Christ, that gets us back to, are you ready to do what Christ did? Are you ready to take up the cross and actually follow? And then I would maybe go down from there and say, I'm a member of a church that gives me an identity, a, a group identity. Then I would probably say, I'm, I'm a husband, I, I'm a spouse. And that, that defines me to a degree. And I'd go down and say, I'm a parent, I'm a grandparent. My parents are, are passed on, but I still am a child of them. And then I might get into, I'm an American. And that defines me to some degree. And probably, you know, I'd get down to the very bottom and I'd say, well, you know, I'm the leader of an organization with people for whom I have a, a responsibility and an affection. But I would never go to that point of defining myself in the way the world would try to do so. And so I started then to think, how do I know how to, how do I know how to be these various things? And that's where we got to the idea of um, culture or, or code and creed. Code meaning the rules and creed meaning the beliefs. Yeah, that's excellent. And I was going to ask you about that. So perfect segue, this framework of code and creed and culture. I love how you laid those out and how they help us form our identity. Could you give us just a quick, and you already started a little bit, but just a quick snapshot of how one plays into the other and how that helps us form identity? Sure. If I am a created being and I have a relationship with a creator, there are certain rules that I try to follow. Those would be, you know, the Ten Commandments and the law. Those are revealed. The creator gave those to his created people for their happiness. So if I follow the code of the creator, then I have a better chance of being fulfilled in that identity. Then, you know, I'd say I'm a follower of Christ. Well, now we have the commandments of Christ. Those in a way are harder because they are to turn the other cheek. They're to forgive seven times, 70 times. They're to um, basically love, you know, your, your brother, love your fellow man as you love yourself. Those are extremely hard things, but that's what we're commanded to do. So the commandments of Christ. And, and so I know what to do to be who I am. And you look, these are embedded in our civilization. Um, when you get married, we have the tradition of vows. That's basically a code. Here are the things that I agree. I will promise to strive to do these things and not do these other things. It's embedded, you know, in our identity as Americans. We have a code. We call it the Constitution, right? And, and so we look at all of these ways in which our identity has codes. And, and these rules are for our blessing. Uh, and it really is counter to the modern and postmodern, and particularly the post-human world that wants to essentially go total anarchy and say rules and laws and codes by their nature are inhibiting our freedom and happiness. And children, you know, sometimes bristle against rules. And you read the Psalms, how many times do they say, Lord, I love your laws. Mm. I mean, how many of us wake up in the morning to say, I love God's laws. I love the fact that we have laws. And yet this is something we have to teach our children. I mean, 
without traffic laws, most of us would have a much worse life just trying to go to work in the morning. Yes. And the code protects us. God gave laws to protect us. And so this is the first thing we get is the laws. But then as we grow and mature, and we see this both through the maturing of God's people over the millennium, but also in our individual lives from being children to being adults to being seniors, we, we gain an understanding of those laws through the creed. What do we believe? And why do we keep repeating this stuff, right? You know, why is it that uh, certain Christian traditions would say the same thing? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in his son, Jesus Christ, right? Why would we say that again and again and again and again? Why was that codified as something that we should bury in our hearts? Why do we memorize the scripture? Because that's what reminds us of the reasons for the code. So the, the creed informs the code. The code forms the behavior, behavior forms identity, and the creed strengthens us to continue in that direction. Um, you know, when we're in school, what do we learn? The Pledge of Allegiance. Why? Because we believe that we live in one nation under God with liberty and justice for all. And why is that an important thing to continuously remind ourselves of? Because that reminds us of our responsibilities to follow the, the rules, the code, the, the laws of being an American. And that makes us happier and more secure and more able to serve so there's, you know, there's a religious side, there's a civil side, but all of these are integrated in their structure. And so I've been just fascinated with this idea of code and creed and how culture really allows us to, to cultivate, to grow our identity in those ways. Because if we lose everything and we've got no home and no clothes and no job and no bank account and no food and we're cut off from everything. The only thing we're going to have left is that which we carry around in our mind and our heart. Yes. Yeah, that's powerful. And I wanted to hone in on this idea of community because, and this is something that is talked about a lot at our church, which I think is fantastic. You know, when God saves us, he, he does, you know, save us individually. That's true. But he also saves us into a community this idea of community is so powerful and we've been thinking about this a lot the last couple of years. And I'm, I'm sure another book that you've read by Rod Dreher is the Benedict option. And that really emphasized to us just how important it is to have, you know, I think he calls them thick communities, thick Christian communities, something along those lines. And, and, you know, that strikes me as something that's hugely important as we prepare for persecution and, we are not supposed to go through this kind of thing alone. That's why we have the church and we know the church will prevail. Ultimately, we might, you know, experience some, um, some culling or, you know, uh, refinement, but the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We know that, um, that doesn't mean we're not going to go through hard times. We, we certainly could be and it. It seems like we're going through a, a tough time right now, but the church is not a building. We know that. And, so we've just been kind of stewing on this idea of, of Christian community. I don't know if I have a specific question, but I would just love your thoughts on how important community is and how we can develop it as we prepare for, you know, again, what, what we're facing as an antithetical culture to our values. Sure. Yeah. I, you know, I think about my growing up, my youth, and a lot of community was just accidental, Right. The, the friends I had were determined by the neighborhood or the school. Um, you know, my father's relationships were determined by his work and his hobby, which was sailboats. Um, th these are somewhat accidental. And I think in those days, 60s, 70s, that was kind of like, okay, because you had this assumption that 
pretty much everyone shares the basic code and creed of being a, at least giving the appearance of being a nation of people that hold to some fundamental shared values. But that is no longer the case and accidental relationships, I don't think will sustain us. So I think Dreyer's point in the Benedict option is that we need to be very intentional about our relationships. And that can most easily happen through church ways of organizing, you know, connection with people who share the same um, spiritual goals, who share the same code and creed. Um, we see that, I believe, in homeschooling, because now your kids' relationships are less likely to be random, i.e. created by whoever happens to go to the same school or lived on the same street, and more likely to be more intentional, we are part of this homeschool group or this community, um, or we seek out opportunities to spend our time with more like-minded people. And that's just vital. That's absolutely vital. And to the degree that you can geographically support that effort to create a shared culture that will raise you up rather than undermine, uh, there's benefit there. If, if you can live close to the people that you want to build community with. And, you know, then you, you do have to kind of hash out to some degree, if not explicitly, at least implicitly, uh, what are the rules that we're all operating under? What are the shared code ideas and what are the shared belief systems? And then we become stronger and our children are more able to internalize the code in the creed. You know, I think it happens many ways. It can happen very explicitly through scripture. But I also think that we need to be continuously reinforcing that through other cultural medium, mediums, uh, such as song. Um, you know, if we read the stories of early Christians, they went to their death joyfully singing. Like, okay, how, how would you do that? I mean, do you even know some songs that you would sing? if you are being led off to your execution for being a follower of Christ, you know? And so how do we get those songs into our mind and heart? Well, we need to sing them. How are we going to sing them in community, you know, as a family, as a church, as a group of people? Um, there's, there's the shared poetry and stories. Um, there's the shared um, activities that we do together that reinforce um, proper relationships. And these are somewhat, to some degree, intangible. And yet, when you find them, you know that's what it is. I'll give you a perfect example. Our, our little community here where I live in eastern Oklahoma, and we have this in California too, we would organize dances. You know, and not the stupid stuff that happens in schools. You know, we'd have like a Civil War period ball, or we'd have folk dances, and you have a whole community, you know, come together, and the homeschoolers and other people who were attached. And it wasn't explicitly a Christian thing, but what was it doing? It was good and beautiful, and it was underscoring the proper opportunity for young people to interact with each other in a social situation. It was building families because there were from grandparents down to toddlers, you know, in this world. And so you look at that and say, we were dancing together. Why is that so, so valuable? Because I think it's 
building in, in a less explicit way, the code and the creed. And that's a thing of culture. See, look at the word culture. It, it, it can mean the books, the movies, the art, the architecture, the music, the, you know, fashion, the stuff of life. And we have very little control over that. You and I can't really do much to prevent or create a good movie or a good book or a good piece of music or prevent a bad movie or a bad book or a bad piece of music. That's going to happen outside our control. Um, but we can control what comes into our homes and our minds and our worlds. But the significance of that is underscored when you look at the word culture, meaning like the Petri dish, the little yellow jello, that's supposed to grow something. The purpose of culture is to grow something. So then you say, is the culture that I am bringing into the world of my family and my community growing faith? Is it growing perseverance? Is it growing a love of following Christ? And, you know, those are the kinds of conversations. And, and I like your idea of strategic families, because those are strategic conversations that have to happen before you make the tactical decision, should we do this or not do that? Right. Wow, that is such a powerful metaphor, this idea of a, of a Petri dish. And creating an environment within our homes and, you know, broader communities that are conducive to growth of the kind of deep, important biblical character values that we want to see things like hard work and humility and love for others. And wow, that is just, that is such a cool concept. I am literally, well, I'm about to have lunch with my wife and kids, and I'm going to talk about that, about the Petri dish and what we want to grow in our home. And again, yeah, in our, in our larger communities. And I love how you talked about and just how important it is that we gather, you know, with like-minded families and, and others who share our values. I think that is so critical. And sometimes the way I think about it is, uh, you know, it's, it's one thing for me to tell my kids, hey, this is important. You should care about this. And hopefully I'm modeling it as well. But man, it's so, it's even more powerful when my kids can hear from somebody else who they don't spend time with, you know, all the time. And that person reinforces what I just said. And, you know, I get the sense that the kids can kind of look around and go, this is, this is a conspiracy. You all believe the same thing. Like, yeah, we all believe the same thing. That's what a community is. And of course there's going to be, you know, rubs and and things like that in community as, as in any healthy community, but it's so, so critical that they see I'm stepping into something that's, that it's important in my family, but it's also important in this community that we've, that we've entered into, there's just so much power in that. Wow. And and the stats you shared earlier about, you know, just how putting our kids in those type of environments can, can help, you know, keep them on the, on the path of hopefully of righteousness and following Christ is just really encouraging. Thank you for all that. That's, that's excellent. I I wonder, you know, you, you mentioned, you talked to thousands of families, you probably have more of a pulse on, on families than the vast majority of people. And And I'm curious, you know, what would you say to, you know, say there's a, a, you know, a parent listening to this and, and they're thinking like, okay, well, I'd like to, I'd like to prepare my kids, but what am I supposed to prepare them for? What are some of the two or three things that you think like, yeah, this is a really important thing that you need to train your kids on and to prepare them for? Well, you know, I think every, every family has to kind of think through this because that's the tactical side. What I did was I, I came up with this idea that if you just could get like a baseline of five songs, five, you know, memorized prayers or maybe quotes. I know some people are kind of allergic to memorized prayers. I am not because sometimes I just don't have the words, but I can borrow, you know, the words of some other, you know, Christian who lived through times biblical or post-biblical, I think there's, there's a lot of benefit in memorized prayers, but uh, that, uh, what are, you know, five um, stories that you would want to have in your mind? And what are five, what are, if you had to choose them, what would be the top five scripture selections? 
that you would want to have in your heart. And if you could get 20 things like that, five songs, five prayers, five scripture, and five stories, um, that would be a starting place. But to do that, you need repetition, right? To, to get it, you know, um, I have a talk on memory called By Heart, The Goodness of Memory. And we think of memorization as being a mechanical mental thing. Whereas really when you memorize something, it comes into your heart and it, it affects who you are. The things that you commit to memory and keep in your heart actually help to form in a way um, your, your conscious and your subconscious thinking, which affects your identity. So I just thought, you know, okay, let's have five things in these four categories. And so I, I kind of polled my Facebook followers and said, hey, if you were stuck in a prison with nothing and you only knew five songs, what would be your top few? And so I put that together and that was the list that I, I gave. And um, uh, I can send you the PowerPoint that has those. I don't think it's a definitive list, nor is it something that everyone should, you know, subscribe to, but it's an idea that you can think through with your family and say, what are the things we want to bury in our heart and, and keep revisiting those and sing those songs and pray those prayers and recite those verses and tell those stories again and again and again. One of the things Dreher says in his book is, you may have to live in a world of lies, but you don't have to let the lies live in you. And the only way I see to not have the lies living in you is to have other stuff that you're full with, right? You, you know, if, you, if you're not full of, of ideas and spiritual practices, then how are you going to repel that, right? But if you are full, at least a little bit full, then you can repel the culture that wants to take you over and fill you up with the lies. So, you know, that how do you, how do you prevent the lies from infecting you and your children and your family and your community? I would argue that's by filling yourself with goodness and truth and beauty. And you got to start on a baseline and and make it happen and that takes discipline which gets us back to the idea of routine and culture right i'm with you on the old hens and the and the creeds i mean the nicene creed and you know so many of these great old hens that we sing i mean it is worth committing them to memory i just love some of these some of these old hens and you know some of the things that the gettys are writing now are just beautiful deep spiritual hymns. And I really think we owe it to our kids to put those in their minds. And I love that concept of filling their minds with goodness and truth and beauty and uh, helping them thereby to repel the lies of the world, the flesh and the devil. That's, that's really powerful. And when you know something so well, you don't have to try hard to remember it. That's what we call second nature, right? Right. When you just know something and you think that's what you need if you're in a condition of being cold, tired, hungry, and in pain. Yes. Because all those things are going to make it harder to remember. But if you, if it's second nature, because you have done it so many times that you don't have to try to remember, then there's this incredible benefit um, when you are faced with that with that hardship that's going to, you know, be so overwhelming. So yeah, a lot to think about there, right? Eh? Oh, so much. Wow. We could keep talking for so long. This is, uh, this has been really a joy and a treat. Thank you so much for all of your thoughts. And before I let you go, can you tell our listeners how they can stay in touch with you and your work? Oh, sure. Well, our company website is IEW.com Institute for Excellence in Writing. And of course we, do a lot in the area of language arts curriculum. And then uh, my podcast, which you've listened to a couple episodes at least, is uh, the Arts of Language podcast. And so that's uh, readily available. This is, you know, this is kind of 
I, I'm not a preacher. I'm not a professional Christian. I, I'm just a guy with a business and a family. But, you know, I believe the Lord has put some of these ideas into my mind and on my heart. And so I hope that, you know, your work will help to orient families, perhaps challenging some of our assumption. I think the biggest assumption we need to challenge is that everything is just going to continue on the way it is. Right. And um, you get this kind of normalcy bias, and then your priorities are affected by that. Yes. So, you know, if we challenge that normalcy bias, then the question is, so what are, what should our new priorities be? Right. Powerful stuff. And yes, highly supportive of the Institute for Excellence in Writing. My son's been through a couple of years of that and uh, has gone through your speech class. And I have to say, I mean, that kid is an incredible writer. And uh, I, I know I could not have written anything like that when I was his age. I'm just thoroughly impressed. And I know he's been influenced massively by your work and the work of your organization. So I encourage everybody to check that out in, the, in, in your podcast, the Arts of Language podcast, which is excellent. Yeah, we're so thankful for your ministry to, uh, to so many families and to us in particular. And uh, thank you so much for your time today. Well, God bless you and your work, Graham, and give my best regards to your family. And uh, hopefully we'll meet up in person at some point. I would love that. All right. Thank you. Wow, Andrew, thank you so much for all that you shared with us today. What an important topic. So sobering, but also just really, really impactful. You've given us so many good things to think about. I love that idea of having five songs, five prayers, five scriptures, and five stories that we can memorize and let them sink into our hearts. We don't know that persecution is coming, but if it does, we'll be so much better off from having prepared ourselves, as you've said. So thank you so much again for your time. What a blessing it was to have you on the show and to be able to learn from you. Check us out on strategicfamilies.com. And as always, we would love to hear from you on how you're building a strategic family that honors Christ. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.